Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are joining us for worship here today. It looks like we have a great crowd here on site, but also we have people worshiping down at our modern hymn service in another part of the building, and we have a whole bunch of people worshiping online as well. I just looked and I saw that Tammy and her family, they're traveling to Omaha right now, and they are worshiping with us. I hope that if you're driving, you're just listening and not watching, but we are glad that you and everybody else who's part of our online community is joining us for worship. So if you are here in person, would you put your hands together? Welcome. Welcome in, our online family, Modern Hymn Service as well. Good to see you guys. All right, and I'm excited to be here. And let me just say to our 2022 grads how proud we are of you. And we're praying for you and we're excited for this next chapter of your life. And I hope you guys are excited as well. But I'm not going to assume that you are because I know sometimes everybody else around you can be excited and you're not near as excited as everyone else. Take, for example... Flossie Dickey. You may have never heard of her before, but she lived uh, just a few years ago. She passed away, and she lived to be 110 years old. She was a resident of Washington State, and in 2016, it was her 110th birthday, and her family and friends threw a big party for her. The news media came to report on this local celebrity that they had, and I want you to take a look at this interview of her. Here we go. Later today, Flossie's family is going to be coming out here to throw you a big birthday party. Are you excited for your party? Not one bit. <laughs> would you, you would rather be taking a nap, huh? So I'm not going to assume just because it's your party that you're excited, but hopefully you are. Because here's the thing, we believe as a church that no matter what the next chapter holds for you, God has brought you to this moment to live out his purpose. And that's not just true for our grads. That's true for everybody who's listening to this message here today. No matter what state you're in right now in life, no matter what season you're experiencing, whether you're here on site or online, it doesn't matter. You are here, you've been brought to this moment to live out God's purpose for your life. Because here's the thing, God created you to live life with God purpose. And I think deep down in all of our souls, deep down in our hearts, we want to live with purpose because we don't want just to pay the rent and go through the motions. We want to live with significance and value and meaning. We long for purpose. And when we turn to God, God shows us the reason for which we were created. God shows us what his purpose for our lives is. But you see, here's the key. We've got to seek out that purpose. I love what the Bible says about David. Paul says this in the book of Acts. He says, for when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers. See, I want that to be my life goal. I want that to be said about me, that when I breathe my last breath, people can say, he lived for God's purpose while he was on the earth. And I believe God wants that to be the goal for your life as well. But in order for that to happen, in order for you to be a person who doesn't just, you know, draw a paycheck and pay the bills and cut the grass, you've got to be somebody who intentionally seeks out that purpose. Because he'll show it to you when you seek it out. You see, if, we, if we're not intentional about living out God's purpose, we will by default embrace a lesser substitute purpose. If we're not intentional about living out the purpose that God has for our lives, we will drift and we will by default live for a lesser, more insignificant purpose. We will live for a purpose that's far less than what God wants us to live out. 
And our enemy, Satan, he knows that. And that's why the Bible warns us in the book of Hebrews. It says, so we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away from it. See, that's Satan's goal for us to drift away from this purpose that God has for our lives. And Satan, he is full of tricks. He is full of schemes to try to distract us and throw us off course so that he can get the best of us and we will live a life that's far less than God intended us to live. I saw this video on social media just the other day, you may have seen it, of a dad and his son playing a game of one-on-one basketball in their driveway. Take a look at this clip. Oh, 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 he on X Games. Oh, Now, isn't that great? Now, we cheer for the dad, but here's the thing. If we're being honest, I mean, do we really believe that the dad has more skill at this point in his life than his younger boy? Probably not. I mean, this boy's in better shape. I mean, he's probably got more skills. He's got more stamina, more energy, all that kind of stuff. But the dad got the best of him. Why? Because he had a trick play that his son wasn't ready for. And I think that's how Satan works as well. Because the Bible says that the one who lives in us, our God, is greater than the one who lives in this world. In other words, Satan doesn't have to get the best of us. But he's full of tricks. He's full of schemes. He's cunning. He knows how to catch us off guard and distract us so that we take our focus off God. And we start to focus on ourselves. And when that happens, we begin to drift But even though that happens a lot, the Bible also gives us this promise that tells us that we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. In other words, even though he's scheming against us, we know that. And we don't have to let him distract us. And one way to make sure that Satan doesn't hack your life so that you settle for a life that's far less than God wants you to live is to make sure that you surround yourselves with people who will help you see what God wants you to see when you start to drift. And I hope that you have a community of people that do that. But I think everybody needs at least one person, one devoted, godly friend who is faithful to you and loves you and is willing to challenge you when you start to drift. We all need at least one person like that in our lives who we commission to speak truth to us so that we will see what God wants us to see when we start to go blind to it. So let me ask you this question. Who's helping you see what God wants you to see? For your grad, you're gonna start a new chapter of your life. And whether you're going into the workforce or if you're going off to school or whatever else, who is it right now that you've commissioned to speak truth to you? Because there's gonna be a moment when you're tempted to drift and who's going to show you what God wants you to see? And for everybody else, whether you're watching online or here in person, Who is it in your life that you've commissioned to speak truth to? Because when you're in the process of drifting, it's difficult a lot of times to recognize it, to see it. And that was true for a woman in the Old Testament named Esther. And we're going to look at her life today together. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to the book of Esther, that's where her story is found. It's in the Old Testament. It's about midway-ish through the Old Testament if you're trying to find it. But you can also look it up on your phone. And I love the story of Esther. It's an exciting story, and it takes place during the period of Old Testament history, which we call the period of captivity. See, God's people, the Israelites, they had rebelled against him time and time again. They had been living in the 
promised land and God had given them everything that they needed, but they rebelled against him and God kept warning them, if you don't shape up, then I'm gonna wake you up and they didn't change. And so eventually God allowed for a foreign power, a foreign enemy to come in, overtake them. The Babylonians came in, they overtook God's people and they took them off to captivity into a foreign land as servants and as slaves. But then over time, another foreign power came in and took over the Babylonians. That was the Persian Empire. The Persians came in, they took over the Babylonians, so now the Israelites, God's people, are under the rule of the Persian Empire. And the Persians, they treated the Israelites a little differently. They allowed for them to go back to their homeland, to go back to the Promised Land, to go back to Jerusalem if they wanted to. And so a whole lot of Israelites went back to their homeland, but some stayed in the land of captivity. They got comfortable there, they were prosperous there, they liked it there, they weren't sure if there was much for them back in the homeland, so they stayed in the land of captivity. And one of those families was Esther's family. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what happened, but somewhere along the way, Esther's parents both died. Not sure exactly what happened, but they both died, leaving her an orphan. And she's raised by an older cousin of hers, a guy who is kind of like a father figure to her. His name, Mordecai. And Mordecai was a great, godly man. He loved God. He served God. He was a faithful witness for the sake of God's people. And Mordecai was not just a godly man. He also was a great leader. And so even though he's a foreigner, even though he worships a different god than the false gods of the Persian people, he's able to move up in the ranks and he becomes a high-ranking official in the king of Persia's court. And the king of Persia this time is a guy named Xerxes. That's a cool name, isn't it? Xerxes, I love it. And Xerxes, even though he has a cool name, he also loves something else. He loved to party. He was a partier to the extreme. So much so that in the third year of King Xerxes' reign, he threw a party that lasted for six months. Now that's a party if you ask me. In fact, the Bible says this. It says, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. For a full 180 days, six months, he displayed all of his wealth before his nobles and his officials and his friends and his buddies showing off everything and they partied for six months and they didn't run out of chips and salsa. They partied for six months and they had plenty of everything. And then after the six month period was up, Xerxes wasn't ready to stop. And so he decides to throw an after party that lasted another week, another seven days after that. And the Bible lets us know what happened at the end of that after party. It says, on the seventh day, King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. He's hammered by this point, okay? So he's hammered, he's plastered, and here's the thing. When you are hammered, you typically don't make the best choices in life. And that was the case for Xerxes. Xerxes is drunk, and all of his buddies, they're drunk with him. And so Xerxes orders his servants to go grab his wife, the queen. Her name is Vashti, Queen Vashti. This is what happens. He tells his servants to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, according to Jewish history, Jewish tradition, when this passage here says, wearing her royal crown, what that meant was wearing only her royal crown. 
So Xerxes wants to bring in his wife and show off her beauty before all of his buddies. You know what Queen Vashti does? She says no. She says, not going to do it. I am not going to do what you asked me to do. And here's the thing. In this day and age, to say no to the king was a crime, but it wasn't just a crime. It was punished by death. You did not say no to the king, even if you were his queen. Vashti knows that by saying no to the king, she's going to be put to death, but she doesn't care because she is not going to sacrifice her convictions for the sake of the comforts of the palace. And I have a lot of respect for Vashti for doing this in this moment. And some of us, we've had to learn the hard way that compromising our morals is never worth what it ends up costing us. See, the world promises us a whole lot, but when we compromise our morals, we end up giving up much more than what we ever intended, and sin never delivers on its promises. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I wish I never would have told that lie. I wish I would have never gone to that website. I wish I would have set down the bottle. I wish I would have never walked into that hotel room. I wish I never would have said yes to that deal. I wish I would have never pretended to be somebody I wasn't. I wish I never would have given in to the pressure around me. I wish I never would have cut corners at work. I wish I never would have sent that text message. I wish I would have got out of that toxic group of friends. I wish, I wish, because here's the thing. When we compromise our morals, when we compromise our values for the sake of the comforts of this world, it just leads to regret and shame. And Vashti, she was unwilling to compromise her values. And I appreciate that about her. Now, King Xerxes, he's ticked, but he doesn't have her put to death. He could have, that's what he typically did, but he didn't. Instead, he just has her banished, kicked out of the kingdom so she can't live in the kingdom anymore. And I wonder if God wasn't taking care of Vashti, if God didn't honor her, her sacrifice, I guess, in that way. I wonder if God wasn't watching over her because she stuck to her convictions. But she isn't killed, she's exiled instead to go live somewhere else. And so for the next three years, basically, King Xerxes lives without a queen, but he has a harem, so he has a whole lot of women around him, but he realizes over time that uncommitted sex is not the same thing as living in a committed marriage relationship, that uncommitted sex might be satisfying for a short period of time, but that ends up leaving you feeling very, very empty. And so you know what Xerxes, this pagan king says, I need a wife, I need to get married again. And so he tells his nobles, hey, I want to get married. And his nobles, they come up with a great plan. This is a genius plan. Let's throw a beauty pageant. Let's get together all the prettiest girls in the land who aren't married, and let's let them parade before you, O king, and you get to be the sole judge. You are Simon Cowell, and you get to look at all these beautiful women and pick which one you want to be your bride. Now, it's hard for me to believe that men were ever this shallow in history, but that's what happened. And I imagine that none of those nobles asked their wives if this was a good idea, but they did it anyway. And so the first ever season of The Bachelor is launched, okay? And King Xerxes, he looks at all these women, and guess who gets to be part of this beauty pageant and also ends up winning it? Esther, a foreigner, a Jew, an orphan, an unknown 
she ends up becoming queen over all of Persia. Now let me ask you, what's the likelihood of an unknown foreigner who worships a different god than the Persian people, an orphan, becoming queen of Persia? It's obvious that God's hand is in this. Because Esther becomes queen just at the right time. So Esther becomes queen and she's living the good life. I mean, she's in the palace, she's got servants, she's living the good life. And for about five years, she's living with all this comfort. But then after about five years of being queen, she gets word that her cousin, who's like a father figure to her, Mordecai, that Mordecai is out at the city gate and that he's mourning and that he's weeping and he's wearing sackcloth and ashes and he's all upset. And so Esther, she's secluded in the palace. She hasn't, she hasn't seen Mordecai near as much as she used to. And so she doesn't know what's going on. So she sends one of her servants to check on him and say, Mordecai, what's the matter? Can I fix this? Can I help you out in some way? And when her servant gets to Mordecai, Mordecai spills and says everything, tells everything. Mordecai says, there's this guy named Haman. And if we had sinister music on cue, we would play it right now when I said his name, okay? So there's this guy named Haman. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, he's the evil guy, all right? He's the bad guy. And he's second in command of the kingdom right under King Xerxes. And Haman, he's an egomaniac, and he's a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, honestly. I mean, he's, he's crazy. And so he wants everybody to bow down to him besides the king and queen. And so anytime you come into Haman's presence, he expects you to bow down. And everybody does it because they're scared of him. He has people put to death all the time. Remember, he's a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He has everybody put to death all the time. And so everybody bows down to him. Everybody except Mordecai. Mordecai will only bow down to his God and his God alone. And this ticks Haman off. And so Haman does some research on Mordecai, finds out that he's a Jew, and this is how Haman responds. He goes to King Xerxes and he says, there's this people group living among us, the Jews, and they are not loyal to you. I think we need to get rid of all of them. I think we need to put all the Jews to death. Now that's a little bit of an overreaction, I would think. But again, he's crazy. And Xerxes trusts him. And so they set a date for the execution of the entire Jewish race throughout the area. How crazy is that? That's why Mordecai is weeping, because he gets wind of this. And so he tells Esther's servant what's going on. And this is what Mordecai tells Esther's servant, or the message that he wants the servant to bring. He says, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him, the servant, to urge Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So basically what Mordecai says is, now is the time, Esther, for you to let the king know that you're a Jew. Because here's the interesting thing. Esther had never told the king she was a Jew. He didn't ask, she didn't tell. They just never talked about it. Apparently it didn't matter to Xerxes. And so Mordecai says, now's the time for you to go tell your husband that you're a Jew and that if he executes all the Jews, you're one of them. This is your time to rescue your people. This is your time to rescue God's people. And you know how Esther responds? It's like, I don't know if I can do that. 
See, this wasn't what she expected to hear. This wasn't the news that she expected to hear. She thought maybe that Mordecai was sick or maybe he had lost a friend or a loved one or there was some situation that maybe she could fix. And this wasn't the message that she expected to get back from her servant. It reminds me of this couple that was getting married and they were getting married and they wanted a certain scripture passage on their wedding cake. And this was the scripture, 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Beautiful passage for a wedding, right? But when they wrote down the scripture reference, they left off the one for 1 John 4.18, and instead they just wrote John 4.18, and so this is what appeared on their wedding cake. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. (laughs) Not exactly the message they wanted, okay? And when Esther gets word back from Mordecai, that's not what she wanted to hear, and so you know what Esther says? I can't do it. See, here's the thing, it is illegal for me to go into the king's presence unless I'm summoned first. And he hasn't called for me for like 30 days. See, they're five years into their marriage. I guess the honeymoon's over. And remember, he has a harem. And Esther hasn't been called for in 30 days. And so she says, if I go into his presence right now and he hasn't invited me, he'll put me to death. I can't do it, Mordecai. She sends that message back to Mordecai And then Mordecai gives, in my opinion, what is one of the greatest challenges of faith in the entire Old Testament. It says this. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Basically what Mordecai says is, Esther, do you think it's just by chance that you, a foreigner, an orphan who was raised by me, comes to power through a beauty pageant, and that you are a Jew, setting at the king's side right at the very moment that your people, God's people, are being threatened? Do you think this all happened by chance? Maybe. Or maybe you've been placed here by God for such a time as this. And Mordecai's words convict Esther's heart And she says, send out all the Jews, send out the message to all the Jews to pray for me, and I'm going to do it. And I don't have time to go through the rest of the story. I encourage you, if you've got time later on, to read the book of Esther. It's it's an awesome story. But basically what happens is, through a series of brilliant maneuvers, Esther is able to rescue, save God's people from execution. And Haman, the bad guy, he ends up being executed, and he's no longer a threat to God's people all because Esther realized that she was created to live out God's purpose and not to settle for her own comforts or some default purpose. And so let me ask you, what's the point of all this then? Why are we looking at the story of Esther today? Well, remember what I said earlier, God created you just like Esther to live with purpose. And the story of Esther reminds us Don't settle for a default path, for a default purpose. 
the story of Esther reminds us, don't let your comforts blind you from seeing God's real purpose for your life because it happens sometimes and it almost happened to Esther. But one of the reasons why it didn't happen to Esther is because she had someone in her life who was able to help her see what God wanted her to see when she started to go blind to it. So let me ask you the question, who's your Mordecai? I mean, think about it. Who's your Mordecai? Who's the one person in your life who will challenge you when you start to drift, who will help you see what God wants you to see? Because we all need a Mordecai, or maybe two. Because this is what Mordecai did for Esther. First of all, Mordecai, well, he let her see that God, that God wanted her to make an impact at this very time. And the same is true for us. See, God wants us to make an impact now, and we need people who are going to remind us of this. See, Esther, she had every reason to dislike the time that she was living in. Her people were being persecuted. Their lives were being threatened. They were living under the oppression of a foreign enemy. Her parents had died. She's under all this pressure. She had every reason to say, God, why am I living right now at this point in history? This really stinks. She had every reason to hate the period of history that she lived in. But Mordecai reminds her, you're not here to complain about your time. You're here to claim your time for God. And here's the thing. None of us get to choose our time, the time that we live in, but we get to choose whether we live out God's purpose in our time. See, I can learn from past generations and I can help inspire future generations, but I can only live out God's purpose in the generation that God has placed me in. And the same is true for you as well. And this is a lesson that I've had to learn the hard way because let me tell you something. When the COVID pandemic hit and we had to rethink everything, especially how we did church, I remember thinking for a moment, man, I wish I lived in a different day and age where it wasn't so difficult to do church. And then over the past two years, there have been people who have reminded me of my calling. And not only that, God has shown me over and over again how he works in the midst of the craziness and chaos. And I have seen God work in ways like I never had before over the past two years. And I have been reminded that I am not, I don't get to choose what time I'm in, but God has placed me here for this very moment. And I believe the same is true for you as, as well. We are here to live out God's purpose now. And that's why I love what the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. The second thing that Mordecai does for Esther is that he reminds her that God's going to win with or without you. And the same is true for us as well. God's going to win with or without us. We just get to choose whether or not we're going to be on the winning team. See, I love Mordecai's words to Esther. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai says, Esther, if you don't step up to the plate, if you don't do what God has positioned you to do, deliverance for his people will come from another place. Mordecai didn't know what that other place was. 
He had no idea how God was going to work if Esther didn't do what he was calling her to do. But Mordecai knew that God would always be faithful to his promises. And so he says, Esther, if you don't do what God has positioned you to do, fine. You're going to suffer for it and God will find another way to rescue his people. But you're not going to get to be part of his awesome work. You're not going to be a part of his winning team. Because Mordecai knew that their God was sovereign over all. And we believe that too. See, because our God is totally sovereign, that means that he is able to give us, you and me, free will to make our own choices. And sometimes we make a lot of mistakes, but he is still in control of everything. And even though he has given us the gift of free will choice, no decision that we make ever backs him into a corner. No decision that we make ever catches him off guard. No decision that we ever make forces his hand. See, when God gave us free will, he gave us free will knowing that he is still in control of all things. And our free will will not stop his ultimate plan from being accomplished. So the question is, are you going to be on the winning team or not? Because sometimes, even though we know God wins in the end, and for that matter in our daily lives, he wins, we still like to play for the other team sometimes. And Esther needed to be reminded, God's going to have the victory regardless. It's just your choice whether or not you get to participate in that victory. Then the last thing that Mordecai did for Esther was that he showed her that the silence of God doesn't mean that God isn't inactive. And I think this is the main thing that the story of Esther teaches us today. It teaches us that we should never mistake the silence of God for the inactivity of God. If you've studied the book of Esther before, you know that throughout the book of Esther, the name of God, the proper name of God is never mentioned. And some people have a problem with that. They wonder why that is. I think that's very intentional that the proper name of God, that God's name is never mentioned throughout Esther. Because it's showing us that even though his name isn't directly mentioned, his fingerprints are all over the story. And that's true for our lives at times. There are times when we don't directly see God at work and we're thinking, God, where are you? And what we miss is God is behind the scenes working in ways that we can't see. But eventually we will look back on our lives. We will say, hey, I didn't see it at the time, but God's hand was at work the entire time. That's what the story of Esther reminds us. That God has an incredible role for you in his story, even if you don't see it right now. God has an incredible role for you in his story. So be looking for what that role may be. And I know that as you look at your life, you may be thinking, I'm nothing great, I'm nothing special. I wonder if Esther thought that at one point as well. But when your life is in God's hands, he can do incredible things with it. My son Alex, he's going to have his birthday here in a couple months. He's going to turn nine years old, which is hard for me to believe. But he's going to be nine years old. And he asked me the other day for his birthday if he could have a Giannis jersey. Now, if you follow the NBA, you know that Giannis plays for the Bucks, And he's an awesome player. And Alex really likes him a lot. We were talking about him just the other day. And Alex was just like, Daddy, how much money do you think he makes? And so I looked it up. And this year, he's going to make like $40 million you know, in one year just playing basketball, and that's just amazing to me. Alex looked at me and he said, hey, Daddy, do you think one day I'll make that much money? I'm like, I hope so, I really do. (laughs) 
Daddy's a preacher. He needs a retirement, okay? So I hope so, honestly. But after I looked up how much Giannis makes, I thought about something. I bought this basketball this week. It's brand new, never been used. I got it on sale at Hibbets here in Owasso. It's $21.95, pretty good deal for a basketball. And let me ask you, this basketball I hold in my hands, how much do you think it's worth? As long as it's never been used, $21.95, right? That's how much I paid for it. You've probably heard me use this analogy before, but I think, it's, I think it makes a valid point. This same basketball in the hands of Giannis is worth $40 million a year. It all depends on whose hand it's in. You see, a shepherd's staff in the hands of Moses is probably just a walking stick. But in the hands of God, it parts the Red Sea. A slingshot in the hands of David was probably just a toy. But in the hands of God, it defeats the giant Goliath. Some loaves of bread and some fish, just a sack lunch for a little boy. But in the hands of God, it fed thousands at one time. A couple of nails in my hand might hang a picture on the wall. But a couple of nails in the hands of Jesus saved the world. It all depends on whose hands it's in. And the same is true for you. You are here for such a time as this. And when you place your life in God's hands, he will do extraordinary things with it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today and this time we've had to open up your word and to learn from this great story of Esther that you've given us. And we just pray, Father, that we will realize that you have placed us here at this time in history in order to live out your purpose for the world. May we never drift and lose sight of what you're calling us to do. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.